Well, good day and welcome to the online ministry for St. Augustine's Anglican Church in Inverell. My name is Matt. It's great you're tuning in with us, friends. This has been prepared for Sunday, the 23rd of October. As we begin, hear these encouraging words from Scripture, from Psalm 105. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Uh, Well, as our hearts do seek the Lord, we go now to a time of rejoicing as we praise him together. Gospel, all your signs. 
Well, friends, as we come to the ministry of God's word, let me pray. Almighty and ever-living God, strengthen our faith, our hope and our love. May we do with our loving hearts what you ask of us and enter more fully into the life you promise through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, our Bible readings today start with our Old Testament passage, which is from uh, Joshua, beginning in chapter 6, verse 27, then going through to chapter 7, verse 1, then also picking up chapter 7, verses 10 to 12, and finally, verses 16 to 21. Uh, that'll give you a bit of a picture of the story that's going on there. Uh, our psalm for today is Psalm 36, verses 5 to 12. And our New Testament passage that I'll share from in just a moment is Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to 5, verse 11. Acts 4, 32 to 5, 11. Take a moment, pause the video, have a read of those passages together with whoever you're watching with, and then we'll come back and I'll share with us from Acts 4 and 5. Well, friends, let me pray as we come to think about God's word together. Heavenly Father, we pray that in this time now you would quieten our hearts and in fact you would change our hearts by your word and spirit so that we can reflect your glory back to you in the ways that we should. Amen. Well, for about eight months of last year, a young lady by the name of Zixin Lee uh, worked as a doctor in Sydney. The only problem was she wasn't a doctor. Uh, she hadn't finished her medical degree and she lied about being a medical intern. She faked documents with the Medical Board of Australia and then began work at uh, Bankstown Hospital. And she worked from January last year all the way up till about August, till mid-August, before she was found out, fired and then taken to court by Australia's Health Regulation Board. I wonder what you think as you hear stories of uh, imposters or fakes like that. Sadly, there can be fakes in the Christian community also. Leaders whose lives don't match up with what they teach or people who just pretend to be something that they're not. Luke, uh, the writer of Acts here, he highlights one instance of this for us in the early church in our reading today. Now, he doesn't smooth it over. He doesn't get rid of all the bumps and grooves. No, no. He gives us an honest, uh, uh, what's and all picture of the early Christian church. He doesn't try and make the Christian faith more appealing by showing it to be something it's not. Now, as a, bit of, as a bit of an outline for today, uh, our, our passage picks up and we firstly see a summary of the community of believers. And it's remarkably similar to the description we have at the end of chapter 2 in Acts. Then Luke shows us one positive example of this at work. It's verses 36 and 37. And then we get to chapter 5 where we see, well, we're shown a negative example. It's, it's the fake, the imposter, the, the phony. It's a story of hypocrisy. And in the wider section of what we're looking at, it kind of stands out as, as being a, quite a spectacular finish. And so the temptation for us as we read this is to kind of skim through chapter 4 and get to chapter 5 to the, the wow factor. Because chapter 4 doesn't really feel very spectacular in comparison. But as we start, I want to encourage you that chapter 5 it actually lifts up what we see in chapter 4. It makes a bigger deal of it. Because in the end of chapter 4 here, what we see is a church that's been transformed by the gospel and God's spirit. Now, last week at the first part of chapter four, we saw opposition from outside the church. 
uh, the Christians were told, stop speaking about Jesus. But Luke tells us they don't stop. In fact, the Christian community goes right along with what they're doing. In verse 32 today, we see all the believers were one in heart and mind. He's saying that there's a unity in this community. There's a unity at the deepest level. Now in the Old Testament, God's people look forward to God's promise of a time when he would give his people a singleness of heart and action. And that's what we see going on here. Now, that doesn't mean that the people are, they see eye to eye on everything. It doesn't mean that they're all of a sudden a carbon copy of one another. No. Early this year, we see that one of the most prominent pictures for the church in the New, in the New Testament, it's of a body. Of a body with many different parts and pieces with different roles, different strengths that all work together for the one goal. And again, that's what we're seeing here. And so how does this unity, unity then show itself in, in action? Well, we keep reading the rest of verse 32. Uh, Luke tells us that no one claimed any of their own possessions as their any possessions as their own, but they shared everything they had. Uh, the oneness of heart and mind led to a Christian generosity and sharing. Now, they didn't give up on, on private ownership of things and kind of put everything in a communal trust or anything like that. As, as we keep reading, we see that's not really the case, what's going on. But they made what they had available to other believers. And this, I mean, I think it sounds remarkably close to how a close family operates. It's a selfless, Christ-shaped kind of love. Well, then as we get to the second half of verse 33, and keep reading through to 35, we see that this kind of selfless love is also sacrificial and voluntary. Uh, second half of verse 33. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For, from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. What a beautiful picture of this Christian community, of this Christian sacrificial love that Luke is showing us here. But we note that this sacrificial nature to it, it wasn't just uh, universal. It was from time to time. It was by those who owned land. And so I don't think the Christian communism of the Brudhoff communities that we see around here is, is exactly what's on display here. Uh, not that that's wrong. It's just not what, not what we're seeing. Now, this voluntary loving of one another, it's out of what we each possess. And the point we see is at the end of verse 25, it's for the benefit, the caring of the believers who are in need. So friends, just imagine what that looks like. Imagine yourself into that picture. Now, reading this, we might be thinking, I want that. I want what they've got. I want to be a part of their community. And so let's ask, it's worth asking then, what is it that's made this community what it is? What's the shape of it? Well, the answer is in verse 33. It's because of the apostles that they were preaching the gospel. Verse 33, he says, With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was powerfully at work in them all. It was the power of the proclaimed gospel that motivated these early Christians to such generosity and love. 
Their communities were the way they were because of the grace of God that had so captivated their hearts. It's all the result of knowing and hearing the gospel. And so we can also see just before our passage here begins at verse 31, these are people who are also filled with the spirit. And so for us, before you then idolize what we're seeing going on here, this kind of loving and generous community, we need to think first things first, right? The horse goes before the carriage. For Greek philosophers like Plato, they envisaged that entering into this sort of common ownership and caring for each other would bring on some sort of utopian future, right? Full of love and harmony amongst everyone. But Acts shows us it's actually the other way around. It's the unity of the spirit, unity through the gospel that then leads to this communal love and caring for one another, for the needy. And so the first thing then that we need to see is the priority of the gospel here. And so for you, uh, do you like going along to church because it's a nice community? Or do you go to church because, when tuning here, because your heart has been so captivated by the gospel that we can't help but love one another? One another who are all one in Jesus. Now, while Christians should be careful about using this model described here to, uh, to make absolute rules about what Christian community and sharing should look like, we should see this as a challenge for ourselves regarding how generous we are, regarding our attitudes towards the body of Christ and one another and our wealth. And so a good question is, do we open our homes to one another? Are we being generous? Do we think that our possessions and our money are things that we've worked hard for? Or are they gifts that God has given us to share? It's a temptation not to be, there's a temptation not to be loving. A temptation to be more attached to the, the gift rather than the giver. Now again, can you feel the picture here, this, the beauty of it? The love, the care that's going on here. Can you imagine just being a fly on the wall and seeing the practical love and generosity being expressed? Uh, expressed out of a firm grasp for God's love for us in Jesus, that he would die for us. Well, that's what Luke wants to show you now. He wants you to see this and he not just wants you to, to think this is all theory, but no, he wants to show you a real example, a positive example of it. And so we go from the abstract then to the concrete and we see the authentic example of Barnabas. His name isn't really Barnabas, it's a nickname. Uh, verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means, son of encouragement, he sold a field, verse 37, a field that he owned, and he brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, some of us might think, hmm, Barnabas, he sounds familiar, and yeah, he pops up a lot of times throughout the rest of the book of Acts, and in fact, in the New Testament. And every mention of Barnabas in Acts, it's one of encouragement. He trips around with a guy named Paul, and he's a guy who takes on discipleship, of helping other Christians, people who have come to trust in Jesus, grow in their relationship with him. With Paul, he's an evangelist. He proclaims the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection. And he doesn't seek self-promotion. He doesn't push for himself to be a leader in the church. No, he's, he has the grace and contentment to be second fiddle in the gospel. He's an encourager. And that's why they've given him this nickname. 
He's the kind of guy you'd love to have as your mate. The kind of guy you'd love to sit down with every week and read the Bible. The kind of guy who you really want your sons or your grandsons as they go away to uni to, to link up with. Because you know that he's going to help them grow. But his love and encouragement, it's not just theological and, and, and personal, relational. No, it's practical and sacrificial. That's what we see here. He's one of these guys who sees the need in the Christian church. He sees there's people who haven't got much, who are in need financially, in need of food. And so he sells some property, gives the money to the, the apostles and says, here's some cash. Do with it what needs to be done. No strings attached. Now we're not told how many people knew about this and, and saw this, but evidently it became, it became known. Now, Barnabas certainly doesn't, he doesn't hold himself up as an example, but Luke does. Luke wants us to see someone here who's living out genuine Christian love. And so his nickname then, Barnabas, the encourager, he's not just an encourager for them back then. No, he's an encouragement for us today too, isn't he? And as Luke holds him up, I wonder if we see the value of being an encourager. Are our words... Words that build people up or that pull people down? Are we quick to share gossip and our opinion? Do we need to be more considered in how we speak to and about others? Do we simply say to a Christian brother, gee, that's tough. Hope things pick up for you. Or do we actually encourage and pray for them? Do we prayerfully consider how we ourselves can be helping them out? Kind of like Barnabas does. So there he is. Luke holds him up as a positive example and model of inspiration in the faith. And so Luke now shows us the negative example, or we might better describe what we see next as the satanic fake. So we're introdu introduced then in chapter 5 to a husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira. And they appear to be doing the same thing that Barnabas and others are doing. They go and sell some land and they acting together, they hold a bit of it for themselves and give the rest to the apostles. And I think you'd be right to ask, what's wrong with that? And the answer is, verse 5 tells us, nothing. Peter says, the land was there, the land was yours. It's your money. It was yours before you sold it, it was yours after you sold it. You can do with it whatever you want. But there's more going on here than what we see. We know there's more going on here because Peter confronts the husband, he confronts Ananias about it. And you can perhaps picture the look on Ananias' face, right? When he gives the money and Peter says to him, verse 3, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Is this the kind of response that you'd expect when, when you give money? Probably not. And so what's the issue? Well, it becomes clear from what Peter says next that they're actually just trying to deceive the church. It becomes clear that while they've just given part of the amount, they're actually claiming that they've given the whole amount. They want to gain the same reputation for generosity that Barnabas had without the same kind of sacrifice. Now, we're not told how Peter knew that there was a lie going on here. It seems like perhaps as an apostle, he was given some sort of revelation from God, special spiritual insight into what's going on. We don't know. But he says in verse 4, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? The answer, yeah, it was. 
So he says, what made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. You've lied to God. Now, let me be clear. Their sin was nothing to do with how much they gave. Right? They were free to keep the whole lot if they wanted to. Their sin was the deception that they conspired about and lied together in, all for the sake of winning the praise of people at church. They wanted to use their money, as well as lie about use their money, to buy reputation amongst God's people. And Peter says, you're not just lying to us, you're lying to God. And the next bit's the real attention grabber. Verse 5. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And we go, wow, are you serious? We're not the only ones struck by that, though. We, you look and you read on and the people are filled with fear. They don't know what to make of it. And I wonder what you think as you read of this. How would you feel if you saw this? Uh, Luke's a doctor, but he doesn't tell us the biological cause of the, of the death. He doesn't. He, he wants us, though, to see, like the people, he wants us to simply see and know that this is an act of God's judgment. Well, once Ananias dies, some young guys come in, they take his body and deal with it. And then we're told some time passes. Uh, Sophia, the wife, turns, turns up and looks for, perhaps looking for a husband. Like, you know, I seen him to the shop three hours ago. Where is he? Well, Peter confronts her as well. Verse 8. Tell me, he says, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? She continues the lie. Yes, that was the price. Well, Peter replies in verse 9, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And she too dies. <laughs> Again, we're not told how Peter knows it will happen. And she too dies. Again, we're not told how Peter knows it's going to happen, but he does. And let's just pause for a moment here because, I mean, it all feels really confronting. You might be wondering, where's the grace? Where's the forgiveness? Where's the, the love of God that we see and see so much about in, in the New Testament? This feels so much more like something we'd see in the Old Testament as God deals with the Israelites. And if you're thinking that way, well, there's no coincidence. Luke actually does want, want us to connect this back to a similar story, to something that happened uh, as God dealt with Israel. A parallel story. It was our Old Testament reading. It's the story of Achan from Joshua 6 and 7. Uh, when the Israelites back then, Joshua 6 and 7, when they captured Jericho, God said, don't take the gold and silver, the devoted things from the city. No, leave it there. But a man named Achan took some. He hid it and he lied about it. And the word Luke uses when he describes Ananias keeping back some of the, the, the sale money for himself is the same word used in the Old Testament to talk about Achan's theft. Now the sin of Achan and the sin of Ananias, they were similar in many ways. Now for Achan, this was the first recorded sin in the community of God's covenant people when they entered the promised land. For Ananias then, it was the first recorded sin in the community of Christians. God's new covenant people are both narratives. In them, it's an act of deceit that interrupts the victorious progress of God's people. And just as God's 
just as God's judgment on Achan was swift and complete, so is it the case for Ananias and Sapphira. It's the same God in the Old and New Testaments. It's the God who hates sin, and a God who never hates sin so much as when he finds it in amongst his own people. Now, someone said to me during the week, now both of these instances, Akan and, and Ananias, it feels like God is issuing an early warning shot for them in the communities. And that's kind of right. Both, after both examples, God doesn't continue to deal with sin in the same kind of instantaneous and complete way. But in them, God is showing the people there then, and us now, how serious he takes sin, especially amongst his own people. Now, the book of Acts is all about the acts of the risen Lord Jesus. Jesus here is on the throne. He knows Ananias and Sapphira's hearts. They are not true members of Christian community. They're a satanic fake. And so the enthroned Jesus, he executes judgment and shows the Christians a striking point. Sin is serious. Sin deserves death. But worse than physical death is the prospect of eternal judgment. Now, the result of these shocking events in, in Acts 5, we're told twice, is that the people, they were filled with fear. And we don't like fear, do we? Uh, but fear can be a friend. Fear can be a friend that reminds us of the holiness of God and the dangers of sin. It's a reminder that salvation is at stake when we turn away from God. Now, I'm not afraid of my stovetop. When it glows red, I'm not filled with terror. But I do have a healthy fear of what would happen if I misused it or if I wasn't careful. Similarly, what we see here in Acts 5 shouldn't drive us to terror, but to have a reverence and respect for God, for who he is, and for how he considers sin. And more than that, it should drive us to see God's love for us all the more clearly as we grasp just what Jesus bore on the cross in our place. Our sin. Our autonomy against God, it invokes God's righteous anger. And Jesus took that for you. Friends, let me offer some further points of application as we finish. First of all, dealing with sin. A God, he's been committed to rooting out sin, uh, even from the very earliest parts of the church days. And so we can't excuse sin in our church either. Uh, willful. Ongoing public sin has no place in the people of God and it only damages community. Now, this kind of incident here teaches us that it teaches us the necessity of church discipline, the kind of church discipline that Jesus talks about in Matthew 18, the aim of which is for people to grasp the seriousness of their sin and to come back in repentance and find reconciliation. Well, God's holiness and his attitude to sin here also tells me that I need to deal decisively with sin in my own life. I can't be complacent about it. And so God calls us, God calls me to continually be, be uh, repenting and confessing my sin to him in light of his word. Secondly, the, the allure of deceit. Our society places such a high value on appearance, doesn't it? And so the sin of trying to show that we're something we're not can be a major problem for us. We want to look good to others. We want people to think well of us. And so a concern for our appearance can make us uh, lose our hatred of sin. 
And so do we create an impression for people, an impression that we are more prayerful of them than we actually are? Do we speak in a way and act in a way that makes it look like we're good Christian people who have everything together and no problems? Do we try and make it look like we're far more generous than we actually are? And since generosity is one of the subjects of this passage, another issue that comes up here is the, the issue of wealth, the love of money. As we see in the example of Barnabas, wealth can be a wonderful servant for the gospel. It can. But wealth can also be a, a monstrous master. In our Western world, there's no greater lie than idolatry. And there's no more persistent and insidious idol than wealth. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul tells us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so, generosity towards others. Giving. It's one of the things that can destroy the idol of wealth in our lives. But as we see here in Acts 5, we can also give for the wrong reasons, can't we? And so there's only one true antidote. For Ananias and Sapphira, these fakes, the problem was that Satan had entered their hearts. Back in the first verse of our passage, in verse 42, we saw that for this authentic spiritual community, they were one in heart. The heart's the issue. If that's the case, what's the antidote? Well, the antidote for the love of money. The antidote for the having a deceitful appearance for complacency of sin, it's in verse 43. The antidote is the gospel of our risen Lord Jesus. It's fixing our eyes and minds and our hearts on the one who died for us. Now through the gospel, God transforms our hearts by the Holy Spirit so that we start to become a community like we see here at the end of chapter 4 of Acts. A community of people who love one another and a community of people who don't seek our own glory and honour, but seek the glory and honour of our holy God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for what you've shown us today, and we pray that you would be truly at work in our hearts, that you would be at work in our lives, that you would transform us by the gospel and by your Holy Spirit, so that we would be a, a loving community, a community that looks out for one another, but a community that's genuine in the way we do that that's not self-seeking. But Father, help us to be people who point the glory and honour back to you. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we go now to another time of praise. Sister, let me wipe your tears Brother, let me bear your fears Come on, every daughter, every son Let us walk in love, for we are one Though we walk along and broken road We are here to Let us walk in love for we are
Friends, we come now to a time of prayer. And so in a moment, as always, uh, that blue screen will come up with a few prayer points on it. Uh, do take a moment now to be praying for yourselves, to be praying for our church, to be praying for things that have come up out of this passage, uh, and especially praying that we would be a people who take sin seriously and strive to be people who live in light of the gospel and through the spirit. Uh, we'll pray and then we'll go to a final time of praise. Well, friends, let me finish, perhaps appropriately, with the words of Philippians chapter 4. May the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, have a great week and look forward to seeing you next time.